So you're going to show me some swag. <laughs> oh yeah. So um, so these were the ones that they were handing out to everybody. Oh. Just it's a pin, you know, just standard kind of pin. It's not very big. It's not as big as a communicator, I don't think, but um, it's cool looking. Um, but this was better. Oh, the visitor badge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I saw that in the second episode just last was, night. Yeah, that yeah. was the that was the biggest laugh line in the whole <laughs> show, definitely in the in the packed uh, crowd was that mm-hmm. visitor badge. <laughs> That's awesome. Very cool. I, I look forward to seeing you at a future conference wearing one of those. <laughs> <laughs> All visitors must report to main security desk. All visitors must report to main security desk. Hello. I uh, have a meeting with the CNC. I have an appointment. Of course, sir. May I have your name, please, sir? Oh, um... Picard, P-I-C-A-R-D, Jean-Luc. Ah, it's nice to see you up and around, Admiral. Welcome back. Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm Mike Wall. A central part of the premise of Star Trek Picard is an attack on Mars, an act of terror that renders our neighboring planet completely uninhabitable, devastates the Federation's hopes of aiding the Romulan Star Empire in the wake of the Romulan supernova, and precipitates a complete ban on the creation of synthetic life forms, resulting in the disappearance of famed cyberneticist Bruce Maddox. As such, the planet Mars appears numerous times in the first few episodes of Picard, a sight that surely pleased and then shocked planetary scientists and space fanatics worldwide. One such planetary expert is my guest today. Her name is Emily Lakdawalla, and she was in the audience as Mars got pummeled over and over and over again on the big screen at the Los Angeles premiere of Star Trek Picard. Emily is a prolific science communicator for the Planetary Society, a nonprofit space advocacy, science outreach, and planetary research organization based in Pasadena, California. Among Emily's many accolades are the very prestigious Jonathan Eberhardt Planetary Sciences Journalism Award and a main belt asteroid named in her honor. Emily joined me over a subspace channel to talk about her experience at the Picard premiere and her investigative reporting on the creation of Mars's appearance for the show. I'm so happy to be joined by Emily Lakdawalla, the world-renowned science communicator who works at the Planetary Society. Emily, welcome to Strange New Worlds. Happy to be here. Now, I've seen so many titles attached to your name, from editor of the Planetary Report to solar system specialist to planetary evangelist. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what work you do at the Planetary Society? 
And I'm happy to. We actually brainstormed some new uh, titles for me the last time I had a title change. And my favorite one was Captain Planets, but they didn't oh, let nice. me have that. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I am a planetary scientist by training, but um, uh, I don't actually do any research. I haven't done research since I was in graduate school. Instead, I explain research to everybody else. And uh, I see it as kind of like a translation function where people who research science and engineering speak an esoteric language that they take several years to learn in graduate school. And I can speak that language. And I can also speak in regular English, which a lot of scientists don't always seem able to do. <laughs> and so I translate from one language to the other and explain all the cool things that scientists and engineers are doing to a lot of different audiences, actually. I talk to the general public, I talk to children, but I also talk to scientists and the press um, because not every scientist can translate the lingo of other scientists. And and I often find that uh, a lot of science, the people in the science community actually appreciate the stuff that I write explaining things that are outside their field so that they can keep up with what's going on. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, as a scientist, I have to thank you for all of your work uh, translating our science for the general public, and then also the the work that you do translating, even from you know scientists who are in a very similar field to mine, like right adjacent to mine. But uh, you help me understand those concepts in plain English, which is just so wonderful. So <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I look up to you so much for all that you do as a science communicator, uh, all the blogs and the books that you've written and the talks that you've given. Um, you and I have interacted mostly in the scientific, academic, professional sphere previous to this chat, so I only suspected, I did not know for sure, that you were well acquainted with the Star Trek universe. So what role has Star Trek played in your life? Well, um, my Star Trek was Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, I had seen a couple of uh, original series episodes, but I totally fell in love with uh, TNG when it when it came on. Uh, my dad and I used to watch it together. And then when I went to college, it was in syndication. And I used to get my dinner every night and watch whatever episode was on every single night at the dining hall. And uh, that was that was just really enjoyable. So I know most of the episodes backwards and forwards. Uh, I watched a few seasons of Deep Space Nine. I watched one season of Enterprise, but I haven't been that involved with the fandom since then. But I definitely love the universe. I, I love the uh, the exploration approach to the universe. Um, I was maybe sometimes a little impatient with the Treknababble, but, uh, mm -hmm. but I did really enjoy the spirit of camaraderie among the crew and the kind of open curiosity with which they explored and found strange new worlds and new civilizations. And, and I, I use that opening that, and I hear uh, Patrick Stewart's voice in my head. I must quote that so many times when I write blogs about, you know, boldly going where no spacecraft has gone before and finding these strange new worlds, because that's what we do all the time in planetary exploration. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And as a big fan of the next generation, uh, you must have been so excited when you heard that Jean-Luc Picard was coming back uh, in Star Trek Picard. Well, you know, I had mixed feelings or I was both excited and apprehensive because you don't ever really know what they're going to do with a franchise when they when they kind of reboot it. And there have been a lot of um, not as careful uh, reboots of some beloved <laughs> franchises. Uh -huh. And this one, I was so happy when I saw it because uh, mostly because they were really not afraid to make Picard standing 
be so much different now than it was the last time I saw him. I haven't even seen the movies, so I, I don't actually know where the movies left his character off. But to see him now and compare him to uh, his standing that he had in the Next Generation show, um, it's quite a contrast. And he's such a great actor, of course, that uh, he really pulls off the, the change. I completely agree that some of these um, reboots, these modern uh, reincarnations of old sci-fi shows can feel uh, like there's a huge contrast and a huge leap. Uh, and and I, f- I felt that as a Star Trek fan when I saw the J.J. Abrams movies and then Star Trek Discovery. There was a little bit of a shift there. But the difference with Star Trek Picard to me is that it, it doesn't feel so much as a reboot as just a continuation, as an evolution, a, a, a natural progress. And, you know, people grow older and they change standing and uh, and their story continues. Yeah, so I contacted you about being on Strange New Worlds because I saw on Twitter that you attended the Star Trek Picard premiere in Los Angeles, and that must have been just an incredible time. So I was wondering if you could walk us through what occurred at that premiere, basically so that I can live vicariously through your experience. (laughs) (laughs) So I was invited to the premiere not for my own writing, but just as the plus one of another writer, Swapna Krishna, who um, is writing the recaps for StarTrek.com. Um, And she's also a freelance writer. She writes for all kinds of stuff. So um, she was traveling into town and we went together. We debated for a long time about what we should wear, which turned (laughs) out to have no point because not a single person noticed the homemade, handmade Saturn skirt that I was wearing with Cassini images on it. It's the first time I've ever been anywhere wearing that skirt that not a single person has made a single comment about. Oh my goodness. kind Kind of bizarre. Um, so anyway, it was, uh, there was a red carpet outside, but there were crowds around it because that was a place where, um, you didn't have to have a ticket to be able to line up around the red carpet. And that's where all the costumed people were. And so Swapna and I were just going to get our popcorn and our, and our Cokes and stuff. And, and they kept on trying to herd us into the theater because they didn't want the lobby to be packed with people when all of the talent came in. And so, um, so we were just in the theater waiting and it's a huge theater. The Cinerama Dome is absolutely enormous. So, and it was pretty packed. And of course, all the talent was, was sitting up front, but you could tell when they walked in, there was a huge round of applause and Patrick Stewart got up and gave a couple of remarks at the beginning of it and um, very warm personality as he always is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he pointed out how many of the members of the original um, Next Generation cast were in the audience, even ones who were not in the show, like Gates McFadden was there, Marina Sirtis was there. Uh, that was very nice. And uh-huh. then we got to watch the first three episodes back to back. And there was a fair amount of audience feedback at the screen, which was kind of fun. <laughs> um, and then at the very end, when they were showing all of the credits for each producer or you know VFX person, whatever, whose name appeared on a screen, there would be a little pocket of, of applause from a little corner of the audience. <laughs> all of their like friends and family were there. And, and nice. they're just like kind of all over these little you know, pockets all over the theater were just uh, celebrating uh, that moment. So that was really nice. Awesome. So you issued a very excited tweet from the Picard premiere that read, um, y'all are going to mock me for my number one takeaway from the first three episodes of hashtag Star Trek Picard, but it's this. Each episode has an opening few seconds in orbit of Mars, and I'm so proud of how accurate a topographic model and color map we have now. And then in all caps, 
it was so recognizably Mars. <laughs> yeah. When I saw that, I just started laughing because it's so you. I mean, you're an expert in planetary imaging and planetary surface processes. And, you know, I, I, I know a lot of people who work on Mars, but not so many who would get so publicly excited about recognizing Mars on Star Trek. So it happens right at the opening of the episode. And I don't know, how spoilery am I allowed to get You're 100% spoiler. Okay, yeah. very good. All right. So um, each episode opens with Mars blowing up, which was, so my reaction to the theater was hilarious because like it opens, you have this kind of dream sequence. You see Enterprise D floating over Mars. So you see Mars through the windows. So I'm like, oh, it's Mars. And then Mars blows up. <laughs> And I just, I laughed. It was so delightful because like it totally caught me by surprise. And I, I literally had said that out loud. And so it was just a, it was just a really funny moment. And then it, they keep doing it. Um, but there are a lot of scenes in those first three episodes where you see the events that lead to Mars blowing up and they have the right color. They have the right feel. Everything that's in orbit over Mars has a completely recognizable geography like you can immediately see Scalparelli Crater in this area, which is right next to Meridiani Planum, which is where Opportunity is. And I checked when I, I finally got a screen cap for an article I posted on my blog yesterday. And there's actually uh, in the image that they have of Mars blowing up, you can see where the, the settlements are. And there are these linear features connecting them. And there's a string of lights that goes right down past the Opportunity traverse area so you can see that like there has to be in this universe before it blew up there was something passing right by and you there must i'm sure be some kind of memorial some kind of little museum thing some kind of national park or something that's protecting the opportunity landing site yeah absolutely which, which was nice but every time i saw mars blow up i would just laughed because i was thinking of like i wish all my hashtag team outer planets friends were there with me to just like cheer every time <laughs> 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 yeah. federation's funding no longer going to mars can be diverted to other planets <laughs> yeah, your um, exploration <laughs> yeah <laughs> well, it would be wonderful to see Europa uh, in a future episode of Star Trek. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so inspired by your feelings seeing Mars on the big screen, you you wrote an article, as you said. The article's title is Star Trek Picard Gets the Martian Landscape Right with subtitle Such a Pretty Planet, It'd Be a Shame if Anything Happened to It. Um, and we'll link uh, the article in the show notes so our listeners can check it out. But yeah, for this article, you actually interviewed one of the Star Trek Picard visual effects supervisors. Uh, his name is Jason Zimmerman. Um, so what did you find out from Jason Zimmerman? Well, the Mars had looked so realistic that I thought that maybe they'd actually simulated it in 3D with the, the map and the, no, that's actually not how they did it. It's just old fashioned art and working with existing photographs and uh, modifying those in ways that work on the big screen. It, it's just art using the image data that we have as an input. And he was a little sheepish. He's like, you know, Google is a is a VFX artist's best friend. Um, but he did. See, he went on to say how important it is for uh, them, particularly in Star Trek, to get things as right as they can because they they know that that Trek fans hold them to a, a pretty high standard in terms of verisimilitude of the space landscapes that they go through. He talked uh, more in the interview. I didn't quote the whole interview. He talked about how like in discussions of VFX scenes when there are, say, spacecraft doing things in deep space, that people will say, no, the spacecraft couldn't turn in that particular way because physics doesn't doesn't work that way. It would have to do it this other way instead. And and that to them, it's very important to, to make it as, uh, as fantasy as some of the elements are, to make the 
elements as realistic as they can do within the limitations of the universe that they've built. And so um, he was actually very gratified to hear from me that I thought that Mars looked really realistic. He's like, that's, you know, that's the highest praise that he could hear. He was very happy to hear that because that's what he was going for. Awesome. Yeah, that's really wonderful. Uh, I loved the part of your article where you noted that in Jean-Luc Picard's dream sequence, Mars was actually mirror reversed. <laughs> and you noticed this because of the relative locations of Isidus Basin and Sirtis Major. And I just thought, wow, what a catch that you were so eagle-eyed to see that. Uh, I mean, what do you think? Do you think they did that on purpose because it was a dream sequence? Or? <laughs> I suspect they did not do that on purpose. It's a common thing that happens actually in VFX. Um, I was a consultant on the the BBC Nova series, The Planets, that came out last summer. And so I viewed a lot of their VFX stuff and, and gave them comments on how to improve it. And flipping, mirror flipping things is something that they do in VFX all the time without thinking about how this is actually a map of an actual world. And you can turn it upside down. That's okay, because there isn't really an up or down in space. It doesn't matter if what angle you're viewing a planet from, but you can't mirror reverse it. And so um, there were things like that. Also, they really liked showing orbiting spacecraft moving from darkness into sunlight. But most spacecraft, not all of them, but most spacecraft are in polar orbits right now. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they would not move across the or along the equator the way that the um, VFX people so often wanted to depict it. They actually move north to south or south to north most of the time. So um, so those are the kinds of comments. Like, and they also, to their credit, were really interested in getting things as right as they could within the limitations of their budget. Um, but yeah, I don't think they intentionally mirror flipped it. Uh, it still looks like Mars. It just took me a long time to figure out where it was because it didn't match the map. I was like, what's that basin? Is it looks like, yes, it is. Is it Hellas? Is it like, <laughs> so I was like, Can you find it? I was like, oh, it's just mirror flipped. It's mirror, yeah. Oh, that would be really interesting if uh, it was like the mirror universe from Star Trek. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but yeah. It is. Maybe. <laughs> um, yeah, it seems like the Picard production team didn't actually use topographic models or color maps, but let's talk about them anyhow. So yeah, um, uh, first of all, what are they and how are they made? When we go out to uh, study the geology of any place, really, the first thing you need is a base map. You need um, the base on which you do all your mapping. And for Earth, traditionally, you used to start with aerial photos. Now we have orbital images. And you make a global map that has images. When you first do this, you need to start with pretty low resolution images because it takes a lot of pixels to cover a whole planet. And so we started that on Mars a long time ago, back with Mariner 9. Mariner uh, 9 was the first um, orbiter. Uh, and we got a, an okay global photographic map of Mars from Mariner 9. But Viking was the one that really produced the first great orbital photo map of Mars. And we're still using the Viking color data as the base map for a lot of our Mars global uh, map views. If you look at any Mars globe, that data is from Viking. That's from a 1970s mission. That's still our best global color map data set. But in addition to photo maps for solid worlds, you also really need topography. You need to know the shape of the landscape because that enters into so many aspects of geology. And so you need a follow-up mission. So you can get a little bit of topography from photographs, but it's it's pretty low resolution or it's pretty local. It's not that great. So mm -hmm. you really need a, a different kind of instrument, not a camera, something that's designed to get topographic data. And so you need an altimeter. 
for Mars, we had something called the Mars Orbiter Laser Altimeter, which was on Mars Global Surveyor, which arrived at Mars in 1997. And that one used a laser. It bounced it off the surface and measured the time it took for the bounce to get back. And from that, we have a global topographic data set. And I was actually in graduate school when this mission was operating at Mars and forming these first global topographic data sets. And we learned when I was in graduate school from MOLA, Mars Orbiter Laser Altimeter, that Mars is high elevation in the south and low elevation in the north. We didn't actually know that before. We knew that the south looked different from the north, but we didn't know that the elevation was dramatically different in the south and north, that south was higher than north. And so it was from that that we learned about these possibilities of the North Polar Ocean. Yeah, yeah. People, people had kind of hypothesized about it before, but we didn't know that the elevation information would back it up, and, and it did. So that was kind of cool. That's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, these days we all, you know, take our planetary science classes and learn about Mars's crustal dichotomy and the potential for that ocean. And it's uh, it wasn't that long ago that we no. discovered that. Uh, it was back when be... I was in grad school. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So so since then there have been other, there have been a lot of other Mars missions, and a few of them have gotten global data sets. So like um, Themis, which is an instrument on Mars Odyssey, which arrived at Mars in 2001, has a global photographic data set that's much better than. Uh, what we got from Viking, but it's in infrared wavelengths. So it can't supersede the pretty color image, the Mars colored view, but we do have a lot more detail on what the landscape looks like from Themis. And then I believe we're getting close to a global data set for topography from the high resolution stereo camera on Mars Express, which arrived at Mars in 2003. These are all pretty old missions, but it takes a long time to build up a global data set and then to do all the fiddly stuff you have to do to correct your data to make sure that there aren't errors that make seams and other kind of ugly artifacts in your data. So it, it, it does take a long time. Yeah, and a lot of hard work. So say the Star Trek team did want to use a planetary data set in a future episode. How accessible is this data for the public? Well, there's two answers to that question. So all of the data is public. So the answer is very accessible. Anything that a spacecraft was required to produce is available in something called the planetary data system. And so that's something you can search, planetary data system. You can get directly to gigabytes and gigabytes of data from every single NASA mission that's ever flown. It's, it's huge, the amount of stuff that's out there. Um, I kind of liken it to the Smithsonian. So just how the Smithsonian museums only have a tiny bit of their stuff on display and the rest of it is in, it's the, it's the nation's attic. It's, it stores all these artifacts of history. 99% of the collection is not on display. It's true for NASA images too, where they prepare some images for public release. They adjust the contrast to make it easier to see. They write a nice caption explaining what you're supposed to be able to see in the image, and then they release it formally. But they only do that with a tiny fraction of the data. And so all of this other data, there's so many wonderful things to find in those data sets. There is, however, a bit of a learning curve involved. So um, it's getting easier and easier to just kind of dive into a data set and pull out pictures at random. They're making it more accessible where you can just say, tell the planetary data system image search tool, you want to see pictures of Saturn's moon Tethys, and you will get a whole lot of pictures and you can click on one, it'll come on your screen, you can download a JPEG. So you can do that, but that's not really the science data. 
It's been processed to make it easy for people to find, but in order to do any scientific work or to make truly beautiful images from it, you really need to go back to the high quality original data. And to do that, you need to know a lot more about how that data is stored, what it actually represents, what you have to do to it to make it look like it might appear to your eye if you were there. Um, there's a lot of work to do, but it's very enjoyable work. It's stuff that I enjoy doing. I've enjoyed it since I was in grad school, and I try to teach other people how to do it all the time. Yeah, well, maybe you'll get a call from the Star Trek team. Um, I, I don't really know where they're based, presumably somewhere in the Los Angeles area, and <laughs> you can go and show them. <laughs> I have a funny story that. about that. So I started yeah. doing CrossFit a couple of months ago, and I wear space t-shirts all the time. And after a few visits to the gym, this one very tall guy approaches me. He's like, do you work in in uh, in space? Do you work for JPL? And turns out he is a, a producer on uh, Discovery. And so wow. every time I go to my, I, it's just the part of town where I live. There's lots of people in the industry. You're going to run into people. And so, you know, nothing has ever come of that except fun conversations in the gym. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe one day we'll, I'll go chat with a team about, uh, about real space exploration. Yeah, that would be so cool. Um, speaking of Mars and space exploration, I know you recently published a book about the Mars rover named Curiosity, mm -hmm. uh, and the book was titled The Design and Engineering of Curiosity, How the Mars Rover Performs Its Job. Um, I was wondering if you could say a few words about what about this mission is so intriguing to you that it compelled you to write a 408-page book about it. <laughs> Not only is it a 408-page book, but it's just part one. <laughs> oh, <laughs> cool. working, on, working on the second book right now. So um, in terms of what compelled me, well, I was asked to write a book about curiosity. But in terms of what made me accept the offer to write this book for Springer Praxis, my publisher, is that I realized that I was actually probably the best person to write this book <laughs> because uh, I've been following the mission since its inception. Um, I've been to all the meetings where they were selecting the landing site. I covered writing for the Planetary Society and, and our website. Um, I covered all of the events in the mission from its development, its delay, its launch, its landing, and all of its adventures uh, across the surface. And so I have the knowledge and understanding and history of the mission all together. And I was able, um, I had all of the necessary knowledge to be able to write a book. And I was interested in trying to write a book for the first time. What happened was I realized about uh, two years into the project, or three maybe, that I was actually writing two books, not one. And so the one that's out is about what it's titled, The Design and Engineering. It's also about the development of the mission. And it's about what the actual robot is that landed on Mars, because there were a lot of papers written during development, not all of which are still actually factual about what systems actually went to Mars on this rover. And then I also write a lot about how things have functioned since the landing. So what is broken and how they've dealt with the breaking parts as happens on all missions. Mm -hmm. The second book is about the science mission. So it's about the definition of the scientific goals. It's about choosing the right landing site. And then it's about the kind of uh, not quite day-to-day -day activities, but the sort of how the science team approached using this rover to answer their scientific questions and then what those answers turned out to be, what their observations and discoveries and, and confusions were uh, in the, the science adventure of exploring Mars with curiosity. Yeah, that sounds like a great read. I can't wait for the sequel to come out. <laughs> so let's look 
a little bit into the future now, not all the way into the Star Trek future, the 24th century, but um, we are about to send another six-wheeled rover to Mars. It's called Mars 2020 because it doesn't have a final name quite yet. What are you most anticipating about this new rover's adventure on Mars? The thing that I'm most anticipating is uh, probably not what the science team wants wants to hear, but I, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing new pretty pictures of a new place we've never visited before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> boldly going where no one has gone before, right? I mean, that's yeah, seriously yeah. what I'm all about. So um, so I'm looking forward to beautiful landscapes. Um, what's over that hill? Uh, what's that cool rock? You know, that's that's really what I'm what I'm in it for. I'm, I'm in it for that adventure of exploring the unknown. Um, this mission's going to be quite a bit different to Curiosity because it doesn't have the heavy onboard uh, laboratory instruments that Curiosity has. Instead, it's going to be roving rather quickly ideally, from place to place, gathering samples for a future mission to pick up and bring back to Earth. So um, as far as members of the public who are fans of rover missions are concerned, this is actually great because it means the rover is going to be moving quickly from landscape to landscape, not getting stuck in one place for a year like Curiosity sometimes does, (laughs) doing all of its scientific investigations in one little spot. But the science is not going to be as great initially. Because the instruments that it's carrying will be doing some interesting things. There are some new kinds of instruments on it that Curiosity doesn't have. In particular, there's a new kind of spectrometer called a Raman spectrometer that has a much better ability from a distance to help us learn about organic molecules and other interesting molecules that might exist in these Martian rocks. And it'll be the first time that that kind of instrument has been flown to Mars, although it's going to be joined by a second one very soon that's um, going to Mars on Europe's rover, um, the Rosalind Franklin rover, which is part of the ExoMars program, um, which will also be landing on Mars at around the same time. And so we'll actually have two Raymond spectrometers in different locations on Mars at the same time, which is interesting. I'm sure those teams are talking to each other so they have some vocabulary about how their instruments' measurements might be comparable to each other. So that's going to be really interesting. And it's also going to be the first time we have a weather station of this type on a rover that is outside a great big deep pit in the ground, which is what Gale Crater is, where Curiosity landed. Mars 2020 is going to be landing inside a crater, but it's not as deep as Gale is. It's not going to be its own microclimate to the extent that Gale is. And so it'll be really interesting to have those uh, weather stations in two different locations. And that's really going to help climate modelers understand Mars's global circulation better, uh, which eventually it all feeds back into understanding Earth's climate better because Mars atmosphere is a simpler system than Earth's atmosphere. And so it always helps to kind of uh, develop your models on a planet that's a simpler system and then try to bring them back to Earth and understand Earth better. Very nice. Yeah. So lots to look forward to uh, understanding Mars weather and climate better and looking for potential organics and, of course, taking pretty pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're just about out of time. So I want to thank you again for joining me on Strange New Worlds, Emily. And thank you once again for all of the amazing work you do in, in science communication and education and, uh, you know, just being an all around super enthusiastic space advocate. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Emily Lakdawalla, a science communicator at the Planetary Society. It's truly amazing how much we know about Mars nowadays. Thanks to its proximity to Earth and its relatively pleasant surface, as far as rovers are concerned, Mars 
is a never-ending fountain for scientific inquiry. But it wasn't too long ago that, as Emily taught me, we didn't even know very basic things about the Red Planet, like how low in elevation its smooth northern plains are compared to its rugged, crater-pocked southern hemisphere. Imagine how much we'll know in just a few short years after NASA's Mars 2020 rover and ESA's ExoMars rover get to know their respective landing sites. The destruction of Mars in Star Trek Picard certainly pained me to watch. There were precious few details mentioned about the attack other than that stratospheric vapors were ignited. I have some sciencey thoughts on that, but I'll wait for a few more Picard episodes to come out before commenting. Maybe we're going to learn more in the weeks to come. I certainly hope so. For now, though, keep gazing up at that night sky. If you can, find Mars the next time it's up. That's a whole other world out there, full of secrets, full of mysteries. Remember that for eons, humans have looked up at that reddish pinprick of light. We lucky souls live in an age where we can actually send robotic explorers to orbit and land on that distant shore. They send us postcards full of images and stories written in numbers of a world that so beautifully reminds us of our own. Until next time, see you out there. science fiction. I guess I just didn't get it.